Almighty God, Father and maker of heaven and earth, we bow our hearts and heads this morning in submission, honor, and reverence before you. You, our wise and good Lord, turn our hearts away from our constant maneuvering and scheming to make our lives what we think they ought to be. Instead, Lord Jesus, grant us grace that we might rest in your providence for our lives, seeing both that the blessings as well as the struggles that come to us are all from your good hand. Convince us this morning, Lord, that our assumptions and even our preferences and plans are seldom saturated with the prayer that they ought to be. We're less often trusting in you and the promises that are good for us in Christ. May we instead this morning, Lord Jesus, see you, our source of true knowledge, our great righteousness, our perfect holiness comes only from you. May our hearts long for Christ, joy and hope that comes only from him in both life and death. We ask these things, these things that we cannot do for ourselves from you and in the name of Jesus Christ, our powerful Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, I have a wonderful plan for your life. If you sit down with me for very long, I'll be glad to share it with you. Many of us know that that is true not only of me for you, but also you have a wonderful plan for the lives of those who are around you. Many of us are quite convinced. We're pretty clear on exactly what needs to happen in the lives of those who are around us to make them better. Um, we are convinced that if people would simply listen to us and our plans for them, that they would have lives that are richer and really, honestly, less annoying to us, less, less frustrating and aggravating. We, we would love to order and orchestrate people's lives. Many of us with, let's say, strong personalities would love to do that. Many of us that are here this morning with these strong personalities would like to do that. I remember when I first was married, uh, one of the first discussions we had just shortly after we were married, Ashley very clearly and firmly said, you can live in your world, I'll live in mine. And uh, what she was saying by that is that my attempts to order and orchestrate all of her life was not necessary. Um, I have that sin that I am constantly trying to orchestrate and work around. Many of you, I've sat in your living room or maybe in your kitchen at the table, and you've shared with me a struggle or difficulty in your life. And I've said something to the effect of, I can't fix this, nor can you. But my responsibility is to help you trust Christ in the midst of this. But, sadly, many of us, we want it to be fixed. Uh, give me a plan. Uh, there's got to be some way, if we go to the doctor, that he can make me better physically. There's got to be some way that if there's an ailment or an issue or a frustration or a difficulty in our lives, we are desperate for somebody to give us answers for what is there. We'll be even willing to listen to some person that we have no idea who they are online that can give us some helpful tips on X, Y, or Z to make our lives better. Those are the people that like to put their hands to the task. They're the ones that when you were in school and was given a project with other people, you were the one that kind of took over and did it, and everybody else just was really glad that they didn't have to do a whole lot. That's that kind of person. There's others of you this morning who are not that active. You're more passive, more laid back. You don't put your hands to the task, but your, your mind and your heart's always working. You're working through the problems. You're considering these things. You, you look at your family and your loved ones, those that are around you. And though you would not interject or say anything, um, your heart's constantly stirring, constantly simmering 
trying to think through how, how can this be made better? How can things be done right? How can, how can these things be fixed? What are, the, what are the angles and the ways that things can be said or done? This can be something as simple as thinking and planning. Sometimes it ends up being staying up at night, letting our minds constantly captivate us of all the problems and struggles that we have. It can lead us to anxiety and even despair if we allow these things to happen. We work ourselves up thinking that it's required of us to try to put our hands on things and to work things out. We are those who are constantly doing this. It is what our text this morning calls schemes or scheming. It's, it's strategies or plans, that procedures that we are constantly doing in our hearts and our minds. All of us do this. We're trying to make it so that that person um, will do what I want them to do. Or these people will no longer continue to go down that path that is causing them so much heartache and struggle. It can be with good motives or bad motives, but either way, we're constantly working through these things in our hearts and our heads. We're desiring to uh, help people. We're, we're in this world that's full of sorrows and pains. What uh, the scripture says here in chapter 7, verse 13, a world that is crooked, and we're constantly trying to straighten it out. We're constantly trying to make it better. Now, we know from chapter 7, verse 13, notice what it says. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Our scheming and our plans, our strategies, our hopes, our trying to work through things. These are before us this morning as we look at our text, verses 25 through 29. Before we get there, I want us to notice that chapter 7, chapter 7 is really answering the question, how do we know what's good? And how do we live in this world that is full of so many bad and sorrowful things? So first, in in chapter 6, verse 12, it says, For who knows what is good for man? And we found out at the beginning of chapter 7 that that really nobody does. The things that we assume are good really are things that we would never assume that are good. Things like rebuke or the house of mourning, the day of death. Um, These things are not things we would say are good. But here in our passage, we see in chapter 7 that those are the things that are good in our lives. And not only are we unable, unable to be able to discern what really is good in our lives, we, we have no capacity to be able to really discern as we look at the things in our lives to discern what is good. Um, that is skewed from us. We also have all kinds of obstacles, ways that we maneuver in our lives that actually cause us not to be able to determine those things that are truly best for us. That's in the middle of chapter 7. It talks through these obstacles to uh, understanding what is good. And then we land in verse 13 and 14 where it says, Consider the work of God. In the midst of all of this, all of this struggle and things that we can't be able to discern, we need to consider the works of God and know that there are things that are crooked and that God has done it and there's no one that can make them right, no matter how much we try to do that. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So we turn then to verse 15 as we looked at last week and the preacher who is Solomon, Solomon's the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he asked this perplexing question, this question that perplexed him, and it also perplexes all of us. Every person on earth is baffled by this very truth. Verse 17 of chapter, excuse me, verse 15 of chapter 7. In my vain life I have I have seen everything. And there is a righteous man who perishes. How does he perish? He perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life. And how does he do that? In his evil doing. So we see this perplexity of life in verses 15 through 18. And then last week we noticed the problem of this wisdom that we try to pursue and never can quite get our hands around that. That's in verses 19 through 24. So we noticed the perplexity of life last week, verses 15 through 
18. And then we notice the problem with wisdom. That's verses 19 through 24. This morning, then, we're going to land in verses 25 through 29. And we're going to notice the peril of schemes. So verses 15 through 18 was the perplexity of life. Verses 19 through 24, the problem with wisdom. This morning, we're going to consider the peril of schemes. The peril of schemes. And we notice in verses 25 through 29, we're going to look at this together and notice it in three sections, if you will. First, uh, verse 25, a determined plan. This is the outline for this morning. Uh, This outline for the peril of schemes. Verse 25 is a determined plan. Point number two, verse 26, is a bitter discovery. A bitter discovery. Point number three, a discouraging sight, verses 27 through 29. A determined plan, a bitter discovery, a discouraging sight. And so this is the tracks we're going to run on this morning as we consider these schemes that are being mentioned uh, in our passage this morning. Notice there in verse 25, scheme of things. End of verse 27, to find the scheme of things. And in the very last words of our passage this morning in verse 29, many schemes. So let us consider this morning this peril, this peril that happens with our scheming, our planning, our strategizing, our trying to order and orchestrate our lives to make them better or good when in fact we have no idea what that is, even if we try to put our hands on it. Let's look first at this determined plan. We've known this Solomon, this man who was given wisdom by God, this one who's calling himself the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is likely a sermon. And he's saying here that he's turning his heart again. We've seen this over and over again where he's done this, where he's, in, in light of the, in light of the, uh, the, the deep, um, far away, the, um, the difficulty and the inaccessibility of wisdom, you see that there in verse 23 and 24, it says, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but... It was far from me. He's saying, this wisdom was so far from me, even as I tried to do that. That which was, has been as far off, this is verse 24, and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So does Solomon then say, you know what, I'm just going to give up? I'm going to wash my hands of it. There's nothing I can do. No. What we find here in verse 25 is that when he acknowledges the distance and inaccessibility of wisdom, he says, there's no way I can give up. He's going to double down. Instead, and he turns his efforts to discern these perplexing enigmas that are in his life, these things where uh, the, the, righteous, the righteous perish and the wicked flourish. How can this be? He doubles down on his efforts, you see here in verse 25. And he says, as he determines to set out this plan and give his effort to this cause, he says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom. Do you see that there? He's determined. He's intentional. He's coming at this from every angle, it says. Chasing every possible path that may give him an answer. The object of his focus and efforts are really uh, to understand two different things here. I want you to notice them as we look. First, he says, I've turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek. What is he knowing? What is he desiring to know? What is he searching for? What is he seeking out after? Well, the first category of things here is wisdom and the scheme of things. Do you see that there in verse 25? He's saying, I want to know, I want to search out, I want to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. 
We have seen how the preacher over and over again, this Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he's constantly pressing wisdom. He's constantly saying, I've, I've looked at everything, I've analyzed everything, I've evaluated everything, and I'm looking at this, and this is what I've come to understand. We know that he's been seeking after wisdom. We've seen that throughout the book of Ecclesiastes so far. But this new phrase is here in verse 25 that I want us to focus on. This phrase, scheme of things, this is new. This term scheme can be translated. Some of you have different translations before you. It can be translated as a reason for things, an explanation, the sum of things, one translation has it, or even the solution. This term is actually a mathematical term. It speaks of the sum total of how things should work together. And here he's saying, I'm trying to figure out with wisdom how everything works together and how these perplexities that are in life, they actually, they actually are producing something that, that makes sense. He says, I put my, 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 my best efforts to know and to search and to seek after wisdom and this scheme of things. As we notice, this phrase is, shows up three times here in our text this morning, and it isn't anywhere else in way of this kind of concentrated effort. So really, this is the aim or the thrust of our text this morning. This is speaking of how, and all of us know this to be true. All of us do this constantly. All of us wake up every morning or maybe go through our days with these kinds of things happening in our life, this scheming. This speaks of how we're constantly working out a strategy to make our lives what we call better, what we think is good. How can we move away from hardships and the crooks and difficulties in our lives? How can we move away from discomfort and toward that which is ease and comfort? How can we make it so that our lives are not as difficult and hard? See, we're always working through that. We're always trying to do that in our lives. We're scheming in that way. We're planning. We're strategizing. That's what's being spoken of here. He's saying here, and this is the whole category, he's using all of his wisdom to discern what, how is it that these schemes are taking place? How are the schemes of things working out the sum of all these matters? How can he understand these things? The wisdom that comes from fitting all these observations together in life. Not only does he desire to know and to search and to seek out, it says here, wisdom in the scheme of things, but there's another category of things that he's wanting to discern, and it is here at the end of verse 25. It says here, and to know, notice this is a different category, the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And these are not separate things. These are, again, another concept. They're just brought together. And he wants to reflect on these things and understand them better. Now, let me take a minute and help you see the scope of what he's trying to understand, uh, what he's trying to endeavor and pursue. Let, let me just list these terms, and, and let me ask you this. As I list these terms, aren't these the very terms that our hearts are constantly grappling with? In this short passage so far, we have terms like this. Heart, knowledge, search, seeking, wisdom, schemes, Wickedness, folly, foolishness, madness. This is a profound list. It's an unavoidable list. None of us want to look foolish. All of us are scheming. We're wanting to know what is wise. We're wanting to, we're wanting to gain knowledge. We're wanting to be able to bring things together and bring the summation of things so that we can live a life that is better and good instead of hard and difficult. And know that we're always working through this through in our hearts and our lives. 
maybe outwardly um, or maybe inwardly in our own minds. We might be stewing on these or we might be sitting down and making an agenda for our own families and our own lives. All of us have to understand and cope with these issues. Profound and unavoidable matters. So he goes through, through this, not, this desire for knowledge, this searching, this seeking. Do you see that there in verse 25? He says, I want to understand first this category of wisdom and the scheme of things, how things can sum up together and, and be actually come forward to make some kind of sense at all. And then he says, I also want to know this other category of wickedness and folly and foolishness that is madness. Why is it that the world seems to be so prone to these things and going after these things? And, and how can I understand these things together? Verse 26, he comes to a bitter discovery. A bitter discovery for us this morning here at verse 26. Notice what it says. And I find something more bitter than death. This is point number two, a bitter discovery. He says his intense, comprehensive search that he had, Solomon pursued with the wisdom that the Lord gave him. Here we have a a bitter discovery that Solomon is setting before us. It's not just a bitter discovery, but it's also a very common example of scheming in life. Life that's constantly scheming. He says, I have found something more bitter than death. What is that? What is this that's more bitter than death that he's found as he's been searching and, 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 and knowing and seeking these things? His search did not produce better, a more comfortable life, a more secure life. Instead, his searching, his scheming, his pursuing actually brought him to something that's more bitter than death itself. does not seem like he's going in the right direction. It seems that the important thing that he's wanting to warn us about here is something that we need to be aware of. He says here, the woman, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He's saying, beware. Beware. There is, is he saying here that all women we should be aware of? That all women are bitter as death? No, no, that's not what he's saying. In fact, we see here very clearly the definite article. He's saying the woman, the particular woman. He's speaking of a particular kind of woman here in Ecclesiastes. We know that he's not speaking of all women because later in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9, he actually says in Ecclesiastes 9, 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Isn't that glorious? That's a great verse. So, The first time I come across this verse, I thought, wow, that's a great verse. I'm going to put that in the next anniversary card I send. And so I went and I got my anniversary card and I pulled out my Bible and I saw that verse. It was out of context, obviously. All I saw was that little part. And I I turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. You can turn there if you want to. It's just a page over maybe. And I began writing out Ecclesiastes 9-9 for this anniversary card of this person, this family that I loved, this couple that I loved. And Ecclesiastes 9-9 says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. And then the rest of the verse says, all the days of your vain life that has been given you under the sun. And I'm like, ah, uh, it, it kind of, it, maybe that's not the verse I need for the anniversary card. Oh, well. And I, I didn't want to send it because I was fearful that whoever would read it, because I didn't know which one of the two spouses would read it, they would think, I wonder what Shane's saying about my spouse, right? Like the other one, who knows? But Ecclesiastes 9.9 speaks clearly that Solomon's saying that we should enjoy the life that God has given us with the life, the wife that he has given to us that we might love. 
Instead, here Solomon is speaking of a particular kind of woman. We can see that from our text clearly. The definite article that is there, the woman. Namely, a particular woman that has a heart that's set on distracting and trapping a man, in this case Solomon, in his search for this thing that he's after. See, he says, I'm desiring to know these things and search after these things and seek these things. And what did I find? I found this particular kind of woman that is not only distracting him but trapping him. And we see that this kind of scheming is one of the most common kinds of scheming. One of the most common kinds of plotting and maneuvering in all of humanity is that which a man and a woman does. You put a single man and a single woman in a room full of people and you'll find that there is a natural propensity for there to be scheming, leveraging, organizing, orchestrating, trying to work things out. This is a very perplexing thing. None of us understand it. Some of you may think that you're matchmakers and you can do that very well. Um, but this is something that even Solomon himself said. Uh, the, the idea of a, of a man and a woman and what goes on when, when that happens is something that's just impossible to understand. Solomon himself says this in Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 18 and 19. He says, three things are too wonderful for me. This is verse 18 of chapter 30 of Proverbs. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. So there's three things that, that are wonderful, and the fourth one I do not understand at all. Listen to what he says in verses 18 and 19. The way of an eagle in the sky, that's wonderful, he says. The way of a serpent on a rock, he says, that's wonderful to watch. The way of a ship on the high seas, he says, that's wonderful. But what's the fourth thing that he doesn't understand? In Proverbs 30, verse 19 says, the way of a man with a virgin. Hard to understand. Hard to figure out. Hard to understand what exactly is taking place there. And why is it so that throughout the centuries of humanity that there is scheming and plotting and strategy that takes place when there's a, a man with a virgin? If this is true of a young man and a woman in general, how much more difficult is it to understand properly or to discern the intentions of a wicked woman? And that's what we have here. You see, it is specifically a particular kind of woman that's being spoken of, whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. Do you see that there in the text? There's a particular kind of woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. This warning is not just here, but it's consistent throughout Scripture. And brothers and sisters, I'm spending time on this because this morning... The church discipline issue that my brother shared with me, and he told me to share it with you, the church discipline issue at Providence Reformed Baptist Church is one of adultery. If you read in our worship journal this morning, and you notice the Harvest Prayer Guide, we're praying for the Guyanese, and one of the main things that are happening here is, 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 the, is, the, um, is the highest percentage rate of AIDS in the Caribbean because marriage is not thought of as something that is beautiful and singular in its commitment. The church is ravaged with adultery. We think we can handle it and maneuver around it. But this, this is a dangerous thing that men and women need to understand in our congregation. It's something that the Proverbs speak of often. And so with that, you can write this down or you can turn in your Bibles here. But I want to take a moment. I want to make, make an underscore of the urgency and the warning of this very thing. This very bitter discovery that Solomon himself found of this woman who is 
It says here, uh, this woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. I want us to be warned of these things. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. My son, Solomon says, excuse me, yes, Solomon says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. This is where it falls apart. Our families have fallen apart. Moms and dads aren't doing what God's called us to do. To be faithful to, um, to, to disciple and to encourage our children, our sons and our daughters to be faithful before God. This is where it starts. Keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you are awake, they will walk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Now I want you to notice Proverbs chapter 6 verse 24. If you aren't looking at it, that's fine. But write this down. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 24. In that verse it says this. To preserve you from the evil woman. And then it goes on and it says, From the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her captivate you with her eyelashes. And I want to make note of this, verse 24. There's actually two Hebrew words that are used throughout the Old Testament for these two kinds of women. And we need to make sure that here we see that in the book of Proverbs, these are being warned against. Solomon himself is warning us against these two types of women. The first in the ESV, it's rendered evil woman. And this is considered a forbidden woman. Some other, I think King James actually translated it, a forbidden woman. It's a woman who is not your spouse, your neighbor's wife. This is the, if you will, Bathsheba of the kinds of women. This is a forbidden woman. This is one that you are not to have, men. But she is one who is a part of God's people. That's the important part here. Because the next woman that's being spoken of, there's an actual different Hebrew word. So it says, preserve you, verse 24 of chapter 6 of Proverbs, preserve you from the evil woman. This is the forbidden woman, the woman who is not one that you can have. The next term that's used here, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. That word adulteress in the ESV is actually a Hebrew word that's translated foreign woman. So the first one is forbidden woman. The second one is a foreign woman. This idea is this. God's people now, as always, have been called not to pursue the adulteress or the foreign woman. And if I go so far as the foreign man, meaning one who does not abide by the law of God, which is being spoken of here in Proverbs. Or later in the New Testament where it says, you should not be unequally yoked pursuing one who is not a believer. So there's two kinds of women that are being warned against here in Proverbs 6. The evil woman who may have the law of God, who may be a part of God's people, but yet she is not one for you to, 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 to pursue. Or second, the adulteress or the foreign woman who is one who does not have the law of God, in this case is not one who trusts in Christ and is a believer in Jesus Christ. She is one no matter, whether, no matter what, she is not to be pursued either. Both the evil woman and the adulteress, the forbidden woman and the foreign woman, are constantly being mentioned in Scripture as those who are outside the realm of faithfulness. Here, Solomon speaks in chapter 6, he speaks of the Father's commandment to forsake 
forsaking not the mother's teaching. He says, to preserve you, this is why you're doing it, to preserve you from this forbidden woman, the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, the foreign woman. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. You see what's happening here? It doesn't say don't go to her bedroom. It says don't desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. But a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man, here's how, here's how serious it is. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? He can't. Can, it, can Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? He can't. So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. That's that forbidden woman. None who touches her will go unpunished. Now, our passage here in verse 26 seems weird. It seems like it's almost an interruption in what's being taking place here. But really what Solomon's saying is this, is that as we are searching for, seeking out things in our lives, we will... This is, this is how inept and in, unable we are in our scheming of things and our pursuing wisdom and our trying to figure things out. We will be trying to look and gather and consistently organize our lives and we'll end up falling into the most obvious and most historically apparent trap of all humanity. And that is the trap of, in this case, the particular woman who's scheming in her heart that has snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. She will bind you and never let you go. Solomon knows exactly what this is like, doesn't he? Many of us know Solomon's life. He's speaking from experience. He knows what kind of fetters that he's been enticed with and now bound to. What's the only way, what's the only way one can escape from this bitterness? Well, we have it right here in our passage. Look with me at the end of verse 26. It says, he who pleases God escapes her. He who pleases God escapes her. That is, it says here, but, but the sinner, notice this, it goes on, but the sinner, that is the one whose only want is to please his own flesh and his own impulses, that sinner is going to be taken by her every time. When we were in chapter 6 of Proverbs, I want to read the end of chapter 5 of Proverbs. I'm giving you these texts because we, as a church, need to faithfully meditate on these and spend time in these. We live in a, a sexually saturated culture that has abandoned the principles of God on this matter. And this problem isn't a problem that's out there on Atlantic Boulevard. This problem is inside of these walls. We are called to be faithful men and women to the, to the spouses that God has given to us. And this is a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ because the commitment a man makes to a woman, the marriage union itself, is a display of Christ's love for the church. And when we do not love our spouses well and faithfully, we are denying the very truth of God's love for his church through the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we're spending some time on this this morning. Proverbs chapter 5 at the very end. If you have young boys in your house, men... Read this to them, and I pray that you will shudder and that you will so pray and read this to your children that they too will shudder when they read this. Proverbs 5 verse 20 says, 
Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman? In this case, the ESV translates it the forbidden woman. That's the one that's in the midst of God's people, but she's not yours. And he goes on, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? That's the foreign woman. He asked that question, and then he says this. And this is so important for each and every one of us to understand. For a man's ways, listen, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. And he ponders all his paths. He's evaluating what we are doing by his righteous standard. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. It says here, this is, this is not something to trifle with. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Let me make a couple of applications and then let's move on. To those who are single this morning here in this congregation, both men and women, I plead with you. Make your zenith priority a deep and intimate love and fear for the Lord Jesus Christ. I plead with you to do that. I plead with you to go before the Lord. And I want to say something to you that you may not believe, but this is true. The intimacy and the communion that your heart desires if you want a spouse will never be found in another person here on earth. That intimacy and communion can only be found with Christ. And once found with Christ, you'll be able to share that with another. So make the priority your intimacy and your satisfaction and your communion with Christ. And by so doing, you will best be able and prepared to love another if you so desire to do so. To single men, my encouragement to you, seek a wife that has as her greatest joy and desire to point you to love and fear Christ and to treasure him above all earthly treasures including yourself, including herself, the lady. Husbands, husbands, prioritize stirring your affections for Christ, fearing the Lord and pleasing Him as your singular aim. In so doing, you will rightly prioritize your wife, your kids, and the rest of those that you're called to love and serve. Prioritize stirring your affections for Christ, not just coming to church, not just reading your Bible, not just memorizing verses, not just showing up, but a, a white-hot fervor for Jesus Christ, loving Him, desiring Him, being a man of prayer. Men, husbands, prioritize this affection for Christ. Single ladies who are pursuing, who desire to have spouse one day, look for a husband that you know, first and foremost, longs to please Jesus and wants more than anything else to be humble and faithful to honor the Lord Jesus Christ in his life as well as in his death. A man who desires to walk carefully and wisely in this perverse generation before the very face of God is the kind of man you need to pursue. Wives, wives, 
Make it your aim to encourage your husband to fix his joy and hope and love on Christ and to please the Lord Jesus above all else. In, his, in this very action, in this very passion of his, in, that, in so doing, he will be able to love you, wife, far more faithfully and deeply than if he foolishly, hear me, if he foolishly made you his ultimate end. That is not his ultimate end. So I spent a lot of time on verse 26. All of you have stories of loved ones and family members and people that are around you. And you know that 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 part of this text needs to be addressed, not only with the world outside, but also the church inside. I pray that I never have to sit across the table again, pleading with two people to not give up on each other. But I fear that we live in this crooked and broken generation, and we will have to do that again. And my prayer is that God in his grace will strengthen us, that we may see his glory through marriages in this congregation. Verses 27 through 29. Verses 27 through 29, a discouraging sight. I want you to notice here in verses 27 through 29, he begins by saying, behold. He's wanting us to see something. You see that there? Verse 27. And then he notice in verse 29, he ends by saying in verse 29, see, see, this alone I found. And so he's trying to help us see something. And he's saying, there's, a, there's something discouraging to see here. And then my prayer is to turn us to something that we can see that is encouraging. But first in verse 27, Solomon wants us to see and give attention to what he's found by his determined and diligent searching. He says in verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He reminds us that his mathematical-like procedure of research is, is taking place. This is no amateur, shoddy, backyard, explosion, experiment kind of, kind of thing that's taking place. He says, while I've been adding one thing to another to find out the scheme of things, the reason he's making this point and he's kind of going on about the fact that he's, he's being very careful here is because in a minute he's going to say, I didn't find out what I was looking for. I didn't get what I was after. And he wants us to know it isn't because of lack of effort or diligence. He's being very diligent. He's adding, while adding one thing to another, I find to find the scheme of things. He's, he's going after this. He continues to let us know that, that he's doing this both personally and continually. Notice what it says as it continues, which my soul, so it's a very personal thing, has sought repeatedly. In other words, he's given his life to this. It's, it's very, it's, it's, it's exhausting his life. He's saying that he's personally involved and invested in this search. Notice what it says. Which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. He says, for all of this this diligent search, I finally come to the end of this and I'm looking around and I said, I haven't really found anything. I have not discovered the reason why the righteous perish and the wicked flourish. I have not been able to discern why it is that good things cannot really be grasped. Wisdom is something that is Far off and distant, it's hard to be able to understand. Through all his determined effort, God-given wisdom, he has not been able to figure out how the world works. How he can straighten out some of the things, not all the things. Even his own life, he can't figure out how to straighten out. 
He is no closer to discerning why the wicked seem to live so well and so long, while the righteous seem to normally die hard lives and die just as young as anybody else. You see, brothers and sisters, the reason Solomon's doing this is because he wants us to know that as we try to scheme and plan and put together our lives, we'll come to our last day and we'll look back and come to the same conclusions. Our scheming, our planning, our strategizing to make things what they can be and should be according to our own evaluation, they will never work. We will come to the end of them and say that in my own soul, I've repeatedly pursued these things and I haven't come an inch closer to understanding them. Now, notice the personal nature of his search when we look at this odd verse in verse 28. I know you're wanting me to speak a little bit about this. This odd verse, I'd love to just skip over it, but um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't let me do that. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. The point here is that Solomon had come across very few men. This is a personal, a personal nature. Remember, he speaks of his own soul, and he's seeking this out repeatedly. So it's his own personal experiment or understanding. He's saying there's very few men. In fact, he goes as far as to say one in a thousand. Very few men, maybe, maybe one or two, that he's found that actually are pursuing the same concern that he has about the perplexities of life the fervency, and with the fervency that he's pursuing those things. He's saying... Throughout my life, I've only met maybe one or two men that had the same concerns and the same depth of interest that I've had for these perplexing issues in life. However, he says in his own experience, in the midst of all the women that he has has known in his own harem that he had in his kingdom, Solomon says that he's known hundreds of foreign women and none of them around them have sought these questions, have desired answers for these things. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 say, Now King Solomon loved many, notice this phrase from what we talked about a minute ago, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Hmm. Foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edenite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to his people, you, this is 1 Kings 11, 1 and 2, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they be with you. Why? For surely they will turn you away and your heart away unto other gods. That's why they shouldn't pursue them. And then the last part of this, the last sentence of verse 2 of 1 Kings, it says, Solomon clung to these in love. Among all these women that were part of his harem, some say there was over 700 now, can you imagine a house more full of scheming? <laughs> wow. <sighs> this man knows what scheming is like, right? Um, among all of these women, he had not found any among them that searched for answers to these perplexing questions that he had. Again, and this is not a blanket statement about all women. Instead, it's Solomon's personal observation as he's considered these things and searched these things out. And he's understood or tried to understand the sum of them. And he says, there's not one woman that I found that are searching these questions that I'm looking for. Let's notice then as we turn finally to verse 29. Verse 29. In this verse, Solomon calls us again to behold or to see or to take note of. You see there in verse 29, he says, see. 
This alone I found. Wow. Now he's saying, I've come to find this. Now, what he's saying here is this. He's saying, I went searching for why the righteous perish and the wicked flourish. And I didn't find an answer to that. But this is something that I did find. And so we've done that before, right? We've gone looking for something or gone ran down a path to do something. And then when we got to the end of it, we didn't find out what we were looking for, but we actually found something else. Here he's saying, this is a very important truth for us to understand. It's something that he did find in all of his searchings. The Lord wants us to make sure that we understand this as well this morning. He says it this way in verse 29. This alone I found, that God made man upright, but they, meaning all of humanity, have sought out many schemes. We notice that Solomon first says he found that God made man upright. The point by Solomon here is that the Lord, the Lord God, did not make the world with its brokenness and its sin and sorrow like he made it. In fact, the Lord made the world. He made the world not full of injustice, but with justice. It says in Genesis chapter 1 that God made humanity upright. In Genesis, it said he made everything very good. He made us, his image bearers, after his likeness even. First Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Our catechism question frames it this way. This truth is explained this way. How did God create man? Question 13 of our Baptist Catechism. God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. So the question then is, what happened? What happened? Our text this morning tells us what happened. As early as the first parents, Adam and Eve, they were in a garden. There was perfection there. They were upright possessing the righteousness that God had given to them. And Adam and Eve wanted to fix things. They wanted to make things better. They, they looked in the future and they believed the serpent and they said, you know what? Where we're at isn't where we need to be. We need to go somewhere where it's better, where it's good. Not this place that God has placed us. Now beware. Because that's exactly what we do in our lives. This very thing is what we're constantly doing. I don't like where the God has me right now and how God's orchestrating my life right now and all the difficulties and struggles and things that are there. I want something better. And so I'm going to orchestrate, scheme, and plan so that I can have a better life, a better good, something that I can assume and presume that is better for me. What truth does Solomon want us to discover in our text this morning? He came to realize after all of his searching that the sin and sorrow and injustice in the world is not due to God's making but it's due to humanity's discontent and wanting to, according to this, but they sought after many schemes. And so the problem, the real horror in our lives is not to be blamed on God, but it's to be blamed on our own scheming. You know this is true. You try to put your hands on things and try to fix them, and they've only become more broken. Sometimes you've managed your life or ordered your lives in such a way that you feel like they are maybe better. But are they? Or are they just better according to your standard? We, brothers and sisters, each and every one of us, have sought our own, our own schemes, our own many ways of fixing our lives. 
and we have not made things better. We've made things worse. So what's the answer? Do we just live in this sorrow, suffering world? Do we just give up and just kind of throw our hands up? Like earlier when I said that Solomon just said, you know what, I'm just going to give up. There's no reason to do anything. We're just going to live our lives. It's just arbitrary. Everything is just happening, and we just are part of it. We're, we're gears in a machine. No. No, instead, we need to attempt to look to our God and see what he has for us. See what he's called us to. You see, the Lord didn't leave man and woman, humanity, in this fretful, sinful state. God offers each and every one of us here this morning a renewed, a restored nature by faith in Jesus Christ. We must then repent this morning of our foolish attempts to fix our own lives and to pursue what we assume is best or good for them and to turn instead and to trust the good that God offers us by faith in Christ. What is that good? Well, we know that God promises us that he'll restore or renew us in true knowledge. It says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, in fact, um, these three verses need to be hanging together in your own thinking as you think about um, where man is and what God's seeking to do through us. First is our passage here, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. The next passage is Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And then the third passage is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. First, we see Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. But now you must put, a, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with all of its practices and have put on the new self. All of that's the scheming that we've done. He's saying, put off all of those things. And then he says, and put on the new self, which is being renewed. That's the word I want you to see. Being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So by faith in Christ then, our knowledge is being renewed to be informed to walk worthy of Christ. Not to simply make our lives better or to pursue the things that we think are good in our lives, but instead to pursue Christ. When we are trusting in Christ, when we're placing our faith in him, he's renewing our knowledge into the image of our creator so that we can better know how we can walk with our savior. Next, Paul goes on in Ephesians and talks about what else is renewed? Not only is our knowledge renewed by faith in Christ, but Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20 says, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's all the scheming again. And to be renewed. There's that word again. To be renewed. How are we being renewed? In the spirit of your minds. That's the knowledge. And to put on this new self, created after, listen, created after the likeness of God. Now, in what way do we, by faith in Christ, are we made into the likeness of God when we trust in Him? Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So by faith in Christ, we, one, will not only renew our true knowledge, our thinking will be more reflective of Christ, but also, it says, we will become more and more like God in that we'll become more and more righteous. We'll grow in our holiness and our desire for holiness. Why would you want to continue in your schemes and strategies to have more and more of what you think is best or better for your lives if what Christ offers is true knowledge, true righteousness, and true holiness for us to walk in? Why would you cling to the things that you think are good 
instead of pursuing that which God says you can have by faith in Christ. We're called to no longer fix our lives or maneuver them or scheme so that we can have our lives to be more comfortable or better according to our own standard. Instead, we're called in every situation. And this is the second part I want you to first. First part was that I want us to understand as we close this message and go to our table, place our faith in Christ, know that what he has for us is good and what we plan and scheme for ourselves, that's not, that's not normally best or better. But then, what do I do then? I've got struggles and sorrows and difficulties in my life. Do I just give up and let God do whatever he's going to do? No. This is what you do, though. Instead of sitting down and thinking and stewing and working through things and saying, how can I make this better? How can I make this work? How can I make that person stop? How can I make this person do this? We can, we can do that all day long. All of us do. Or... By faith, we have a true knowledge. By faith, we have a true righteousness and holiness in our hearts. We can sit down and say, Lord, this is the life you've given me today. Here are the hardships and difficulties and struggles that my heart keeps clinging to and I'm concerned with. And here's here's the turn. Here's the thing that we must do as God's people. Lord, how can I be faithful in this? You see what you're doing? You're not saying, Lord, I want this to be fixed. Lord, I want this, this, and this. Lord, I want more comfort or more ease. I want this or want that. You're not maneuvering. You're saying, Lord, this is what you've laid before me. And Lord, my desire is to be faithful. How can I be faithful here? And that faithful may mean you have to do the hard thing. That may mean you have to enter into a more difficult conversation. But the question then isn't, how can I fix this? But instead, how can I be faithful in this? We now reason from our renewed knowledge. We We reason from our desire for righteousness and holiness, not just more for the world because of faith in Christ. How might I be faithful in this difficult circumstance? How might I be faithful to love and serve this person, not fix them? That's our tendency. We want to fix that person, not simply be faithful. Have you ever tried to change somebody? Pretty frustrating, isn't it? I mean, you can beat your head against the wall or act like a maniac or, you know, cut them off or make their life miserable. You've tried all that, because I have. I know you've done it. Have you, ever, have you ever changed them by that? Could it be that the Lord wants you to be faithful, to honor Him, trust Him, to go before Him in prayer? It means that we are no longer trying to be pragmatic. For some reason, we think God wants our lives to be fixed. We're no longer pragmatic, trying to make things happen. Instead, we're trusting the Lord to accomplish His plan that's better than our plan. And that plan, according to the word of God, is this. To sanctify us completely, that our whole spirit and soul and body might be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every man and woman and boy and girl in here that has the spirit of God in them, just said in your heart, yes. Yes, that's what I want. That's what I want. Well, that verse continues in 1 Thessalonians 5, and it says this. He who calls you is faithful. And no matter what the crookedness and junk that's in your life right now, that verse says, he will surely do it. Stay faithful.